To all of our listeners, we want to preface that the opinions expressed on this podcast are those of us and our guests as individuals. The claims and statements do not reflect the opinions or views of the Florida State University Department of Art History or FSU as a whole. Hello, and welcome back to the Did You Enjoy Your Your Visit Visit podcast. Podcast. I'm Francesca. And I'm Olivia. And we are here with one of our wonderful peers. Yes. um, Brittany. Um, Brittany, do you want to introduce yourself? Hello, my name is Brittany. Um, Should I go ahead and give the background now? Yes. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, my name is Brittany. I am finishing up my first year in the Museum and Cultural Heritage Studies program at Florida State. Um, In undergrad, I studied studio art and art history and had a minor in museum studies. Um, During my time in undergrad, I did um, intern at the 621 Gallery in Tallahassee and got some really good museum experience, but... Really, in undergrad, I took a few classes with some really awesome professors who focused on centering Indigenous voices, and um, ever since then, I've been on that track Mm -hmm. to go into cultural heritage and preservation of Indigenous culture, and um, a special interest of mine is Indigenous policymaking with NAGPRA and really working as more of a liaison um, to ensure that Indigenous rights are um you know being upheld Mm -hmm. and that the items are being repatriated so yeah so actually great segue into nagpra for our viewers that have no idea what nagpra is can you explain it even the Mm -hmm. acronyms yeah yeah Yeah. so nagpra is the native american graves protection and repatriation act it is something um it's a law only in the united states so Mm -hmm. it's you know, bound by territory. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially it ensures that... Does that include U.S. territories like uh, Puerto Rico? It's and... a good question. That <laughs> is a really good question. Um, I don't think it does. Does it? No, I think it does. Mm-hmm. Should we Google that? <laughs> Keep going. I'll, I'll do some research. I'll do some Let's research. Let's circle back to that. We got research on deck. <laughs> I'll Google it, but... Okay. That's a really good question. I didn't yeah. think about that. I, I, I would like to say yes, mm-hmm. because it's a United States yes. law. Like, it's it's a right. law in place, mm-hmm. because it's for federally recognized um, tribes. Mm-hmm. So, that's a really good question. <laughs> now I'm really curious. Yeah. But, essentially... Yes, okay. yes it does. But okay. I, I don't think... I, I think... Even just from, like, the first couple of sentences of this, it seems like it's not as, um, it's not applied with as much, um... Emphasis. Yeah, or, like, with, it's not, it's not applied with as much respect as it is, or... Sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which kind of makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, so, would, when did you start, when did you initially, did, like, start to learn about NAGPRA and um, become 
passionate in policy making mm-hmm. as like a future possible future career avenue for you. Yeah. So in my first semester of grad school, I took a kind of like an art law class, mm-hmm. essentially. Mm. And um, we studied a lot of different policies for a lot of different areas of art. I've always been someone who was interested in law school, actually. I just never um, really wanted to go to school for it. Right. <laughs> right. Um, law school is like a whole other beast. Yeah. yeah I, I so really- that would have been like your number two is like yeah. being, the art, yeah, being the art track just didn't work out. Just. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I see you be a lawyer. Also. Yeah, that's what everyone yeah, says. I, I can 100% I, yeah. I want you to represent me and my child. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. y'all I'm, understand, Brittany asks, like, the good questions. Mm-hmm. I do. And she'll get, she'll get to the bottom of some information. I'm a curious yeah. girl. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I have always been really interested in policymaking mm-hmm. and law. And, mm-hmm. yeah, I've always had an interest in that. But I just never really wanted to go to law school. Yeah. Um. But I took the art law class, mm-hmm. and we had a whole section on NAGPRA, and I was already familiar with it somewhat mm-hmm. um, yeah. from undergrad, just from the couple of classes that I had taken, but mm-hmm. um, there's a lot to it, and I actually got to sit down and read the actual policy and all the pages of it and all the caveats and all the gray spaces. And, oh, um, wow. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hefty. Mm-hmm. Um, is, it, and, is it really long? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's not like you know, like a hundred pages long, but yeah. It, yeah, it's a document. Yeah, that you can sit with for a little bit. Yeah. Do you um, feel like because uh, so with policy writing, I know it's different from like your research writing as far mm-hmm. as the language. Mm-hmm. When you read that NAGPRA, did you find like, okay, I see where somebody could come in and like make this into a loophole. Yeah, because yeah. a lot of it um, uses language that's like, this isn't the exact verbiage, don't quote this, but basically saying like, as much as possible. Yeah. Like, when yeah. when applicable. It's, when you can. Yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, there's no mm-hmm. absolutes in it. There's no like, hard numbers, which I understand the whole system as a whole is very gray area. But yeah. um, when you come into law it's a little crazy like my expectation for the law was very different from what it actually was Mm. um in terms of the language because there was so much that could be interpreted and like loophole and Mm -hmm. it it, because it's like well who determines that yeah and then you find Mm -hmm. out that it's like committees but then you look into the committees and there's they're not diverse and it's not good representation and Uh there's no checks and balances in it so Mm. there's it's a really good law Mm -hmm. you know, for being made in the 70s. Um, mm-hmm. But it's definitely really interesting that it's still how it was, you know, over 50 years like ago. Like, it hasn't been revised and their expectations haven't been solidified within... I I think they have added, like, some little tidbits to it. I don't know, like, the exact details, details of that. I think they have changed it slightly, but the basis of it is still the complete same. It's It's pretty hard to get changes to it from my understanding from what I learned from that class Mm -hmm. so something that I've I've been actually wondering and confused about and I don't know if you know the answer to this but like there's certain NAGPRA is like enforced by it's not by government officials it's kind of like on the museum right Mm -hmm. or and like certain indigenous communities usually go out Mm -hmm. of their way to like 
make sure that these that these laws and like expectations are being respected Mm -hmm. but do you think that museums are focused on that crap no I would agree. No. So, <laughs> so, so flat out, no. No, because basically, like, when the law was set in place, they had a timeline to go through all of their objects, everything that they own, and um, basically determine its tribal origins, I guess. Like, which is honestly, like, even a lot of the language associated with NICRA, I don't necessarily agree with. Like, a lot of this is just kind of the terms that are used with it um so definitely take that into account as well like a lot of this is not indigenous centered terminology but yeah basically the like you could tell it wasn't written by somebody yeah absolutely indigenous yeah indigenous groups weren't involved no there was no no community involvement Mm -hmm. in this no there's no Mm -hmm. collaboration um uh at least that's the way that it comes across yeah we don't really know what goes on the underground Uh, scene but yeah (laughs) um in the background Mm -hmm. but um yeah so they um yeah so museums had to essentially label all the objects and determine their um origin i guess their their provenance if you will yeah and then that like once they establish the provenance they then are legally required if they are federally funded they're legally required to return that object to the tribe that they have deemed to be the original owners of mm-hmm. um and you said federally funded right yes any uh-huh. any federally funded institution has to abide by NACPRA can you give examples of some federally funded for our listeners mm-hmm. um most museums mm-hmm. like literally probably like majority of museums mm-hmm. um state universities yeah so Florida State is uh-huh. a federally funded institution mm-hmm. um Literally, like, any museum, a lot of universities, those are kind of the go-tos. Yeah. Any archives, even. Yeah, but that's a... Isn't that also a way, like, if, for instance, there's a museum or even, like, a college or university that isn't federally funded, they it, it's easy to avo- avoid enforcing NAVPRA, right? Mm-hmm. If they're not federally funded, they are not, not legally required, required to, to follow yeah. it. No. So that's, that's, like, another also, loophole. Yeah. 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 That's also where I wanted to come. I was like, so... Mm-hmm. Other museums that are privately funded, they don't necessarily have to follow this. They don't have to, Mm-mm. period. Right. This is not a law for them. Mm-hmm. It's, it's only for federally funded institutions. Right. So with the amount of federally funded museums and inti- institutions out there, did they see an increase of repatriation? And if so, like what is hindering mm-hmm. those objects going back? Yeah, so once the museum labels it and returns it mm-hmm. to law, anything that they are, um, and I'm using quotations here, but unable to determine their origins, mm. they can name it as culturally unidentifiable, um, mm. which is really... Another loophole. Another loophole, yeah. yeah. It's a, to have, like, a button <laughs> on this. Be like, another loophole. Literally. <laughs> Um, yeah, so basically what, what that means is if the federally funded institution is not able to, um, dis- I'm struggling to find the words to even describe this, but if they are unable to determine its provenance, if they can't mm-hmm. pick a tribe or mm-hmm. potentially they don't have the resources to, mm-hmm. um, you do know, the research, yeah, to involve the community to, you know, 
find people who specialize in these areas, they can label them as culturally unidentifiable. And what that means is that they are not legally required to return the items. Um, As long as they have done their, quote, due diligence Mm -hmm. of finding the tribal owners, the community Mm -hmm. that it actually belongs to, um, they're not legally required to do anything with it. So that's a big issue. There's a whole website that you can go on where you can look up these federally funded institutions and you can see how many objects they have made available for repatriation. Mm, I would have to look it up. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. I remember I we talked about it. it a little bit. But um Yeah. But you can see what was made available for repatriation and what wasn't. Mm-hmm. And if something is not made available for repatriation, yeah. it's actually up to the indigenous communities to um find the objects and basically prove that it belongs to them and so it puts a lot of the burden on the communities that have already suffered such a great loss and are missing really important components Mm -hmm. so that's a pretty big issue of the policy for sure yeah just to backtrack a little bit for people that don't know what provenance is would you mind like Mm -hmm. defining it yeah so provenance (laughs) is essentially just knowing um the origins of ownership um it's just like knowing where it came from and who has owned it along the line mm-hmm. yeah it's really interesting i'm i'm not going to call out a specific institution but um when i was i recently toured um a archaeology institution and they had a whole box no, it wasn't a whole box. It was a series of boxes and shelves where there's no, they have no idea of provenance, yeah, of like these different like cultural heritage items and even human remains. I think mm-hmm. it's kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's another thing with um, NAGPRA is it only can guarantee the repatriation of um, indigenous ancestral and. Um, cut this part out hold on let me think it's the they can only guarantee the return of funerary objects and ancestral remains okay so even that in and of itself is like the policy does provide definitions but it's up to the museum to make that determination of what fits those boxes um and that can be an issue as well Mm -hmm. because it's not really like like super regulated I guess yeah I was about to ask it doesn't seem like there's any type of regular or like what you said before any types of checks and balances of this anyway because Mm -hmm. honestly I can see so many ways that these institutions can lie and say like oh yeah we couldn't find it they probably didn't even do any type of research Mm -hmm. yeah but you just gotta (laughs) take their word on it yeah you know so yeah and I find it interesting like in our class together archive class together I feel like it's also not a focus at all and like in terms of doing the research and finding things like finding the origins and communities that certain items belong to in various archives Mm -hmm. it's not really a focus and I thought it would be you know what I mean yeah so it's kind of surprising so you talked a little bit about how certain institutions don't have to um follow NAGPRA is there anything else that you want to add or talk about in relation to that yeah so it's actually NAGPRA has a really interesting history in terms of it being created because before NAGPRA came into law prior to that um the Smithsonian actually has 
one of their museums. So the Smithsonian owns a lot of museums, mm-hmm. first yes. of all. They have a lot of museums. Yes. But one of them in particular is the um, National Museum of the American Indian. Mm-hmm. And it was something they established to um, house their items that are you know indigenous in origin and um with that whenever they created that museum they set up their own act so it's the national museum of the american indian act um oh it's an actual oh yeah i did not even know that yeah and essentially it was enacted in 89 and um they created their own repatriation process. So they are actually not required to follow NAGPRA. And it's really interesting because if you read the NAGPRA policy, it says, except the Smithsonian. Except the Smithsonian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, wow. Because they've established their own their own repatriation process. That's crazy. Um, and then you know they, how big you gotta be to be like, Actually, we don't follow this whole federal law. We're our yeah. own entity. So, yeah, it's like so Disney or something. Smithsonian is the Disney of the museum world. Yes, that's a good. That was a, a great analogy. Yeah. Off the dome, honestly. Yeah, yeah, right off top of the dome. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I just want to look this up here. Um, yeah, so um, this is from the nps.gov website. So, the Smithsonian Institution is not subject to NAGPRA, but repatriates under the National Museum of the American Indian Act of 1989. Um, so, they do not have to abide by the same policies, and they abide by their own policy. Um, with their repatriation policies, they kind of go by a little bit of a different system. So, the different indigenous communities essentially have to, um, I'm actually going to quote this, the NMAIA requires the Smithsonian to return upon request Native American human remains, funerary objects, sacred objects, and objects of cultural patrimony. So they are more of by a by request mm, basis. And, and they have repatriated on their own and they come up with an annual report mm-hmm. of their repatriation and everything mm-hmm. is very transparent with their numbers, yeah. um, which I do really like and I really yeah. value that in the, you know, in mm-hmm. the institution. It, it is, you know, you are able to find those numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can definitely foresee a lot of issues with that, you know, <clears throat> having one entity that follows their own policies that they kind of come up with and then their committee board um, you know, is derived by them, and mm-hmm. they're kind of the decision makers on what gets repatriated. And in terms of cases where they don't necessarily know the origin, they've actually been called out quite a few times in academic papers for repatriating to the wrong community oh. or oh, making wow. making the wrong call. And and that's something we see with NAGPRA as well. That's not just the Smithsonian. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. that's what happens when you you know maybe don't have the resource or aren't willing to put resources towards people who specialize in this area or collaboration with the communities it just can get really hairy it gets really really messy this is the smithsonian they yeah ha- they got they have the resources yeah 100 yeah. percent. and yeah. i was gonna actually ask you if you thought that it's been or to your knowledge has it been more effective than or in the process of repatriation in comparison to nagpra um also, I want to say earlier I said NAGPRA came out in 1970. It was 1990 
So the NMAIA oh. actually came out Bef- first. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just okay. realized I said the wrong date with that. But yeah, it okay. came out in 90. So NAGPRA came out afterwards. Mm-hmm. So the Smithsonian kind of set the standard. And then NAGPRA followed suit. Mm-hmm. So in terms of effectiveness, I've seen the numbers. In my opinion, they are not great. Yeah. In my opinion, as somebody who is an emerging professional and wants to go into this work, I yeah. think we can do better. Yeah. I think we can do a lot better. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was not super, super impressed by it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also really interesting during COVID times, um, there was like no repatriation at all. Like you see this crazy dip in the yeah. graph, mm-hmm. um, which I understand. Yeah. You know, there was obviously a lot going on. They couldn't. Uh huh. They couldn't social, fly people in to come the see the object. Pandemic. Yeah, yeah. Pandemic yeah. shut everything down. Yeah, which is yeah. something crazy to think about too, in yeah. terms of like a bigger picture of repatriation, is how yes. much this has set everything back and yes. who it's really like harming at the end of the day. It's mm-hmm. it's really interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in terms of effectiveness, I don't really feel like either of them. Um, should be exemplified, you know, mm-hmm. or, or glorified. I think both of them could be better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think they both could have done better as well. So what do you say to the, because you probably get this question a lot, if we give all the objects back, what's left? What do you say to those people? Um, so th- this is a whole conversation as well about mm-hmm. art mm-hmm art in quotations yes um Uh these pieces that are in museums weren't really created with the intention of being shown in a museum right they were never created for that purpose this idea of wanting to like create art purposely Mm -hmm. for the sake of putting it into a museum to be exhibited is actually a very new concept yeah um you know there is it's actually really really cool there's a very long history of um, collecting art and putting art into like an exhibition but it yeah. started originally as just not just but as um, you know in caves we could see artworks yes. you know or objects yeah. lined up kind of mm-hmm. paired into collections and mm-hmm. curated in a certain way mm-hmm. but then you know, a lot of people know the origins of museums to be from Europe because mm-hmm. um, very rich people in Europe wanted yeah. to show their friends their extensive like the collections salons. of goods yeah and so they started collecting objects mm-hmm. putting them together and that's where that idea of like a museum as we know it in this kind of European mindset came to be um so to people who are concerned about you know what do we do if you know we turn all the objects there's nothing there and there's a lot of options to it some things were never meant to be shown some things are sacred should Mm -hmm. never be seen yeah you don't just some people understand like certain objects have spirits attached to them and yeah uh indigenous people think they know that those objects are alive to them so you're holding Mm -hmm. on to a person almost you know and yeah and sometimes it's not just almost a person it is a person (laughs) it's a physical it's a physical ancestor yes it's Uh yeah and and those are things that they're just showing in display cases and it's Mm -hmm. it's very heartless and it's or not even display cases in their collection yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah, it's just sitting not even being used so yeah yeah Yeah. it's just sitting in a storage space so then what is your um so another solution that you have to educate other people about indigenous culture without Mm -hmm. using their objects then 
Yeah. Well, I think um, the biggest thing and the, the biggest issue that a lot of people have is they think, oh, you know, these indigenous communities are of the past. They're not in existence anymore. So exactly. we need we need the objects to show who they are. Mm-hmm. When in reality, these communities are, are living here. and the language is yeah. live and the culture is alive. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, just really establishing true, meaningful connections mm-hmm. to the communities and having pure intentions of wanting to share a really beautiful aspect on their terms yeah. you know what did they want to share with the world and just right. really shifting the conversation right. to loop in the communities more mm-hmm. um and keeping culture alive that way like yeah. i think that's way more meaningful as well rather than looking at something Absolutely. in a behind a glass case i think yeah. it's way more meaningful to meet the people yeah. and meet the families and taste mm-hmm. the food and try the tea oh, and yeah yeah <laughs> like there's it's that's the thing people is learn the, a lot about culture through their food absolutely yeah and I dance so much, and song when I went to Naples and, with you I learned a lot about Italian food oh yeah it's more than just <laughs> I, went, I learned it's more than just Olive Garden out there <laughs> yeah oh, yeah. Olive Garden. <laughs> <laughs> yeah there is a oh lot my more God. <laughs> oh, yeah and then something I want to say as well about mm-hmm. Niagara like one like additional loophole is it actually only applies to um federally recognized tribes oh yes, yes. that's a big so, part of it yes. yeah. and there are i believe i i think don't quote me on this but i believe there's over 300 tri- yeah do a little google search i believe there's over 300 tribes that you know we are aware of that we have statistical reportings of that um are not federally recognized yeah. and so they don't receive these same benefits and it's you know a whole other conversation that you know without federal recognition you can't receive like receive basic human decency um of returning the objects uh so i'm looking at it's 574 um recognized recognized truck and can you tell to our viewers what that means to be federally recognized and honestly i like i can but i can't because Mm -hmm. it is purposefully of i mean in my opinion i think allegedly it's very purposefully made this way mm-hmm. it's it's really confusing it's a really confusing process it's mm-hmm. entirely places the burden on the indigenous people and the indigenous communities um and it's tough they have to provide a lot of documentation there's a lot of caveats mm-hmm. there's a lot of box checkings that you have to do there there's like a certain requirement of like number of living people and yeah. then you have to show um like the lineage you have to prove the lineage mm-hmm. um and th- there's a lot to it there's a lot of document submissions it's actually like pretty hard to find on the website yeah um, so i want to read this off of usa.gov it's like the definition of federally recognized indian um tribes says the u.s government officially recognized 574 indian tribes in the continue contiguous 48 states and alaska so that does not even include u.s territories either and hawaii is and, a separate right. entity as well exactly yeah. these uh federally recognized tribes are eligible for funding and services from the bureau of indian affairs either directly or through contracts, grants, or compacts. Yeah. And then with NAGPRA as well, it does apply to Hawaii, just in a different way. Yeah. Um, they are mm-hmm. called, if I'm remembering right, I believe it's it's called an NHO, Native Hawaiian organization Uh um and so it does apply to them as well it's Mm -hmm. just a different different name for that Uh but um yeah there's there's a lot of loopholes and then 
there's also a lot of tribes in the U.S. that are not federally recognized, and that's, I think there's, like, over 300 um, that are not federally recognized, so they don't receive any of the benefits from it. Mm -hmm. Interesting how that's a difficult number to find on a Google search, because I was was just looking I'm looking right now. Well, this is awkward. Uh, It says almost 400 unrecognized tribes in the U.S. Yeah. So, which is, you know, that's a whole other issue as well. Should we, should it be a requirement to have federal recognition to receive repatriation rights? Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think no. I think no, too. Right. Since it's so complicated and confusing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, It's hard. It feels like, it's almost, it reminds me of the U.S. citizenship test and how, most Americans can't even pass it themselves, but yet we're asking, you know, people that are coming in to know all this information that Americans really don't care about, honestly. Yeah. Like, do you know the 17th president? Because I don't. I don't. No. That's one no, of the, I don't, are the yeah. types of questions, it's, though. They, You're but absolutely it is right. one of the questions. Yeah. It's one of the questions on there. Mm-hmm. And then, um, so I guess a, uh, a question I have for you would probably be the uh, last question. Mm-hmm. What where do you see yourself in this as far as policy making like what is what is Britney's career after mm-hmm. this yeah what is, what is this story for Britney for yeah <laughs> well I you know I definitely I have so much more to learn um yeah. with policy making with NAGPRA with NMA and you know just the museum field as a whole mm-hmm. I'll be interning with the um NACPRA coordinator of the southeast region of so the cool. U.S. next so cool. semester so yeah. I'm really congratulations hoping, thank though. you yes yes um so Is I'm not gonna be here in Tallahassee yeah it's okay. at SEAC yeah so, oh, okay cool cool yeah, cool yeah the NACPRA coordinator so uh-huh. I I'm really excited to learn a lot i'm gonna ask a lot of questions yes um but there are a lot of nagpra coordinator positions that are going to be opening um and there's a lot of positions within the government Mm -hmm. and then you can kind of work for the state or you know whatever and Mm -hmm. can help to establish policies there's a lot to it Mm -hmm. um and i really don't know i just know that Mm -hmm. I gotta gotta follow my heart. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah. But I feel like yeah. you have like a solid foundation of what you're passionate about, and I feel like there's something out there for you. And you, mm-hmm. and you're also an amazing writer. I've seen your Thank you. <laughs> read your right when you did that labels. I was like, oh my gosh, Brittany, it was just poetic, really Thank poetic. You. And so I'm really excited to see what type of um writing you'll do for policies and how you can help change that language a little bit to make it more a little bit more concrete mm-hmm. instead of this a lot of gray area and another loophole yeah. you know just more you know community centered yeah absolutely yeah do you have anything you want to leave our viewers with about nagpra or just you know Anything you mm-hmm. want to, so the question I kind of leave off is like, what kind of advice would you give to somebody that wants to come into this field as mm-hmm. far as like grad school, looking for a career in the museum, cultural heritage field or whatnot? Mm-hmm. Um, my biggest thing is ask a lot of questions mm-hmm. and be the first person to listen. 
Absolutely. Um, yes. Be curious. Yeah. Say that again. Yeah. Some people just don't <laughs> Be curious with an open mind. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I think it's really easy to go into something very passionate and want to be the one speaking when a lot of times the most important work we can do in cultural heritage and preservation is to listen. Absolutely. And to, yes. to make the space for it. So that would be why, my You see why her writing's on point, y'all? Poetic. <laughs> just yes. poetic. You know? But yeah. Off the dome. But thank you so much for joining us, Brittany. You gave us some great insight. I definitely learned a lot more about NAGPRA, and uh, I'm so excited to see the work that you're going to be doing in your internship and in your future as well. Thank you. Thank Thank y'all. Thank you. And um, this is the end of our episode. And we hope you enjoyed your visit. And if not, well, maybe next time.